0: No kids to dodge this morning on the way up here. Uh, it's kind of sad not to see them, but then I get to see them this way. So uh, I'm glad all of you kids are with us. Let me just say this to you. It is hard to listen to sermons when you're a kid. It's hard to listen to sermons when you're an adult. You know, I, I, uh, I go to these conferences sometimes and the sermons are all you know hour long and, and th- throughout the day. And so there's a, a part of the, service that's worship, music, and then we worship through hearing preaching. And I struggle just as much as anybody else to to follow, to listen, to stay focused. Uh, And so I understand. So let me just say to you kids, uh, work at it. It uh, it is work. It is work to worship the Lord well. And so work at it and try to, uh, with God's help, become a better listener. Try to get the big ideas. And as you grow up, become an adult you will grow into a good listener of sermons. Praise God for the opportunity to gather again today and to be in His Word. That is why we have sermons, is because we want to understand the Bible. We want to understand what God is saying to us. He is the one who speaks to us, uh, and He does that through the written Word, through the Scriptures. And so we, throughout the history of the church, have had teachers, those who expound on the text, those who explain to us, God's word, and that's what we're doing right now. And so our text for today is Romans 13, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Romans 13, and today we're in verses 1 to 7. For the last several weeks since entering chapter 12, you could say that we have been in the practical part of Paul's letter to the Romans, although I think sometimes that can be less than helpful. It implies that we can just snooze our way through uh, chapters 1 through 11, you know, and then we get to the real sort of practical stuff uh, in chapter 12. What we've seen throughout Romans in the first 11 chapters is that there is much practical help for us in living the Christian life all the way up to chapter 12. But it is true that when we get into chapter 12, we are beginning to sort of. Uh, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we begin to see uh, the Christian life lived out in light of the truths that we have heard. This is the outworking of the gospel in real life. Remember that the main theme of Romans is the gospel. And so uh, this is the outworking of the gospel of justification by faith alone, through God's grace in Christ alone. This gospel of grace in Christ Jesus it looks like something in real life. It, It shows itself up in our actions. It shows itself up in how we go about our daily living. And that's what we're seeing, the outworking of this gospel. This is what it looks like to live in Christ or to live according to the Spirit. Or, as we've seen recently, this is what it looks like to live as a sacrifice to God, living, holy, and acceptable. This is what it looks like, as Romans twelve two tells us, to live a non-worldly life. And I've said this before, but if we ask the question, what does it look like to be worldly, it is the opposite of what we've been seeing as we've gone through chapter 12. And so we find here what it means to live a non-worldly life. Or we could say it this way, an other-worldly life. A life transformed by the renewal of our minds. A life that is utterly dependent on God's grace and God's empowerment because we recognize we can't do it. And if you've felt that way over the last few weeks, that's exactly where we ought to be. If you leave here charged up, sort of chest beating, uh, then that's a sign that you don't get it. What we, what we leave here as is humble, prayerful, meek, and mourning over our sin, but knowing with great confidence That God, by His Spirit, gives us what we need for all life and godliness. He gives us what we need to do what we've been seeing in Romans 12. Paul has just told us in chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, how we are to respond to outsiders, to those in our world. He tells us that we are to live noble, respectable, above reproach lives in our society. By the way, we find this uh, idea of being above reproach for elders, for the officers of the church. But that's also to be the case for Christians in general. It's not just, uh, uh, well, we can be under reproach, not above reproach if we're not officers of the church. No, all Christians are to live noble, respectable lives above reproach lives in our society. We are peaceable, if at all possible. Instead of seeking revenge, we trust that vengeance belongs to our just God. When we are mistreated by our enemies, we respond with kindness, even taking care of their needs. So we don't merely respond and say, well, I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to get back. We respond by meeting their needs, by doing them good. God is calling us to a radical, counter-cultural kind of life. And I think we've seen that recently. This is radically countercultural. It, it is not that way so much on the surface. And in theory... But when you begin to practice these things, you realize how much, given our sinfulness and given the brokenness of our world, how utterly countercultural the Lord Jesus was, his people are, and this kind of life will be. We are aliens, we are pilgrims, we are salt and light. And this is what it looks like to be those things. So let me just say this to you. There are a lot of ways that we bring God glory in the world. Let me just encourage you to think about the size of your stone. When you take a stone and you throw it into a pond or into a lake, it makes a a certain size splash given how heavy and dense that stone is. And what I would submit to you is that what we've been looking at recently is the largest stone or one of the largest stones that you could throw out into the world for God's Glory. It will make a splash. And that splash, that impact, will bring our Father in heaven much glory. This morning, our attention turns to a new but related theme. How are we as Christians to relate to our government, to the authorities, the authorities that exist? Over us. And Paul reminds us here that they are indeed over us. They are over us. And our responsibility is to submit to them, to be subject, as he says, to their authority. In fact, this is the one big idea of verses 1 to 7 of chapter 13. It begins very clearly in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. So the title this morning, nothing creative, submitting to the authorities. That's what we are told to do in these seven verses. That is the idea that we are looking at this morning, submitting to the authorities, the governing authorities over us. So let's stand and read God's word together. seven verses for us to read this morning. We'll just begin at the beginning of chapter 13. Remembering what we covered there at the end, verses 17 to 21. Verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray, ask for God's help to communicate clearly His Word, to receive His Word in faith, trusting Him. We talked last week about how our response to our enemies, our response to those outside, uh, is governed by our faith. It's governed by our trust in God. It's, It's founded on our faith. We won't be able to love our enemies, to refrain from vengeance, to not pay people back. We won't be able to do that, to put that into practice, if we're not actively trusting God if we're not trusting in what we can't see, if we're not living by faith and not by sight. And so we recognize this morning that we need that faith in order to put into practice what we have before us here. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace. Father, we are so grateful for another opportunity to gather under your word and to hear what you are teaching us. Lord, we have a lot of blind spots. We We get distracted, we get encumbered with the world. Lord, it's so refreshing to be able weekly to come back and hear you speak. Lord, and throughout our daily lives as individual Christians, in our private time of prayer, in our family worship time, in our uh, small group time, in our Bible studies, and in our one-anothering in general, and even as we uh, meet with Christians in our workplaces, uh, those who go to different churches, Uh, As we talk with believing family members, Lord, you are refreshing us with your word. You are feeding us. You are doing what Psalm 19 says. Uh, You are making wise the simple. You are rejoicing the heart. You are giving us something sweeter than honey, something much finer than much fine gold. So God, we praise you for another time to come to these treasures, and we ask that our hearts would be submissive to your word God, that it would be taught clearly and that we would listen to what you are saying. God, help us, give us grace, give us faith to live this kind of life, uh, trusting you in the midst of uncertainties, in the midst of vagueness, in the midst of much nuance. Lord, help us to live faithfully before your eyes, to live coram deo, before your face, to do all that we do heartily unto you, not for men, but for you. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to grow in our faithfulness, help us to grow in our confidence in your way, in your way for us. Would you be with the kids this morning as they're with us, Lord? Would you calm their minds and their little bodies? And Father, would you help them to receive some of what is here? Uh, Lord, would, would you increase what they are able to receive? Would you take what they do receive? And use it exponentially for their good and for your glory. And for all of us, we pray the same. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul gives us three considerations as we think about relating well to the authorities. As we submit to them. And here they are, three considerations as we obey this command. It's a command. It's a command from Paul. It's a command of the Apostle Paul, who's commissioned by the Lord Jesus. It is a command of the Holy Spirit, who inspired it. It is a command of the triune God, who made us, redeemed us, and who will one day welcome us into his glorious eternal kingdom. So what are the three considerations? First, the authority of God. We'll look at verses 1 to 2 for that. Second, the aim of government. Verses 3 to 5, and then we'll end with the act of giving in verses 6 to 7. So let's start with the authority of God. Look with me at verses 1 to 2. Verses 1 to 2. Let every person... By the way, that's pretty... That is comprehensive. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities... For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, the command to submit to governing authorities is found throughout the New Testament. This is not unique teaching. It does smack us in the face at this point. It's pretty extensive here, the amount of attention that Paul gives to it. But this is found throughout the New Testament. We can go, for instance, to the Gospels. Jesus' words regarding taxes. And we'll talk a little more about taxes at the end. But Jesus' words regarding taxes in Mark chapter 12, verse 17. And we also find this in Matthew and Luke. Simply, Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He pulls out a coin, a denarius, and he says, Whose picture's on that? Whose inscription is on that? okay. Then give it to him. Give it to the one whose face you see there on that coin. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And then we see it in Peter's instruction in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Here's what he says. Be subject for the Lord's sake. That's important. For the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme By the way, that's a kind of a built in tyranny there. Even in that kind of imperial rule, we live in a democratic society. We praise God for that. But even in the context of an imperial rule, Paul says, Peter says that, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God. That by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. But living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then Paul's words here in Romans as well as other places we get... Other instances where Paul deals with this same theme. So let me read you a couple of those. Just so we can get what God says about this issue clearly in view as we move on. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 to 2. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so that's the reason Daniel prayed as he did earlier. And we frequently, usually pray that way during our corporate prayer time. We pray for our leaders. We are commanded to do that. We pray for them. And then Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 remind them to be submissive to rulers. Paul's telling Titus, hey, remind those people in Crete who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind those people in Crete who bear the name of Christ, who are born again, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. I'm gonna read that one again. To speak evil of no one. Yeah, that's in God's word. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people all people after reading these texts i think we would all agree that this is to be regarded as an important aspect of christian living we we've read these texts i've tried to put them before you so that you feel the weight of these passages and, and I think we, we must come away from that and say at the very least before we dig into the topic, and of course the nuances of this topic are, 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 are quite in depth, we won't get to every aspect of the, of the nuances of this, but I think at the, at the very least we have to walk away from a passage like this in light of all the other occurrences of this teaching in the New Testament and say that this is an important aspect of what it means to be Christian, In the world. So let me just ask this question Have you considered this teaching important in our day? How much attention have you given to this aspect of Christ's command to his disciples, to God's command to us, his creatures, and his redeemed people? You know, after last week's sermon, I talked to a few people who had said, you know, I just haven't really given much. Uh, The first question, I think, on the deep sheet was, uh, how much attention have you given to this? Something along those lines. And, you know, that that was something that came up in conversations with folks is, you know, I haven't really thought about this very much. And I think that itself communicates the fact that as Christians, we have strayed. The fact that something so obviously Christian, Something so fundamentally and essentially Christ-like has been neglected to the point that we give much thought to all kinds of injunctions, all kinds of prescriptions, all kinds of commands of our Savior, our Lord. But this one, it's collecting dust over in the corner, at least with regard to last week. To what extent is this command collecting dust in your life? To what extent have you hidden this one away in a box, in the garage, or in the closet? We can easily move beyond the basics. We get lost in all kinds of particularities and we just move beyond what it means to be basically Christian in our world. Here we see what it means to be basically like the Lord Jesus There have been many different governments throughout Christian history. But this one overarching principle stands. Be subject to them. Submit to them. 2,000 years of governments. 2,000 years of magistrates and governing authorities all across the world. And all Christians reading the same Bible. Be subject to them. Submit to them. But why? why if christianity is so countercultural then why shouldn't we all be revolutionaries why shouldn't we all be in the midst of a revolution if christianity is revolutionary in the sense that it is so radical and countercultural if our world is defined by darkness and in ephesians paul will say that we we were darkness not, not just a, it had a little darkness, but actually un- the unbelieving world is described as darkness. Every government, part of the course of this world, under the prince of the power of the air, if our world is defined by darkness and this darkness inevitably infiltrates every government to varying degrees, why in the world are we to submit to them? Why? Well, Paul gives the most important reason in verses 1 to 2. It is because the government's authority must be seen against the backdrop of God's authority, the authority of God. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's what Paul says. Not only has God instituted government in general. Let me make this point. This needs to be made clearly. Not only has God instituted government in general as a phenomenon, as a part of society, but God has providentially set certain governments over us at certain times and in certain places. There's a concreteness to this that Paul is upholding. Those that exist in the present are instituted by God. That's what Paul is saying. We find this theme throughout the book of Daniel. This is a a big theme in Daniel in particular. So chapter 2, verse 21 of Daniel. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. We say we believe this. Do we act like we believe this? Chapter 4, verse 17 of Daniel And repeated throughout the book, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. He gives rulership, kingship, to whom he will. And listen, yes, yes, in the case of Daniel, this pertained to the pagan Nebuchadnezzar, who with his gigantic army moved into Jerusalem, killed Countless Jewish people destroyed the temple and carried off Jewish exiles. A man absolutely engorged with his own glory, his own ego, his own pride. A man responsible for countless murders, atrocities, killings, men, women, and children. Yes, in the case of Daniel, this pertained to the pagan Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, in the case of Paul, this pertained to the godless rulers of Rome. Pick the one you want in the first century. Go through. Pick the emperor you want. Just burrow down a little bit. Read Plutarch. Read Suetonius. Read Tacitus. Read the ancient Roman historians. Read about these guys. Yes, in the case of the rulers of Rome, The same Rome who had recently executed the innocent Son of God. The same Rome through Pilate who had put to death, yes, he washed his hands, but it was by his own order that Christ was put on the cross. Yes, even Rome. The most evil deed that's ever been done was the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. The most evil act ever committed was committed at the hands of Of the Romans, the very uh, government in place when Paul writes these words. And yes, in our case today, it pertains to a government that is becoming increasingly antagonistic to Christians and to Christianity, to God's truth, to God's gospel, to God's ethics, increasingly antagonistic. The Westminster Confession of Faith written in the 1600s by the Puritans in England, says this, infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them. I was reading a little bit of the martyrdom of Polycarp this week. It's the same thing. He stands before the magistrate, second century. He's about to be put to death and, Uh, The magistrate tells him to talk to the people, and he says, no, I'm not gonna give a defense of myself to the people, but I will to you because we have been taught to respect our rulers. This is Christian. It has always been Christian, every time and in every place. Paul goes on to say that because our governments should ultimately be traced back to God's authority, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed And those who resist will incur judgment. So here's the principle. Resistance to the governing authorities is ultimately resistance to God. And it will bring judgment. It will bring punishment from those authorities in the context, which is an outworking of God's own punishment. And we will have to give an account To God for how we respond to the government. But two things have to be said at this point. And there are many things that could be said. But I think at the very least two have to be said. First, in the words of Peter in Acts chapter 5 verse 29. When they are told not to preach. When they are told not to propagate by their rulers. Told not to propagate The name of Christ. We must obey God rather than men. That is what the Apostle Peter said. We must obey God rather than men. So that's the first thing that must be said, is that our ultimate allegiance is to the Lord. It is to God. God's authority trumps, obviously, as we're seeing here, it trumps the government's authority. And the only reason the government has authority is because it is, Against the backdrop of God's authority. God has instituted it as we read here. The second thing to consider is that is because God is our ultimate authority, civil disobedience may be necessary. It may be necessary for us to disobey our governments, for us to disobey our magistrates, for us to disobey our, our kings and presidents and prime ministers or whatever else, governors county commissioners, mayors, whoever else, it may be necessary for us to participate in civil disobedience. Consider the disobedience of the Hebrew midwives just as an example from Exodus chapter one, verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. What? But you're supposed to obey the king of Egypt. He told you to put to death all of the male children that are born to the Hebrews. And the midwives did not do it. Why? Because they feared God. So in their fear of God, they disobeyed man. Because what they were being asked to do was evil. In the modern world, we think immediately of the murderous actions of the Third Reich under Hitler in Germany in the 1940s. We think of all of the atrocities and the ways that Christians, in little moments we don't even know about, were called, like the Hebrew midwives, to not do evil because they feared God. To fear God and therefore to disobey man. We think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's a hard name to say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter three, verse 12. This is what the, the rulers who are trying to capture, trying to get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego set up to, because to, to, uh, they don't like them. This is what they say. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. And that is true. They weren't paying attention because the king had told everybody when the trumpets and the instruments go off that everyone was to bow down to this ridiculously Uh, egotistical statue, uh, and, and they were to bow down to it and worship, basically worshiping the king. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, of course they don't, because they fear God. They obey God rather than men. On a more practical level in our time, we think of the sometimes excessive measures taken by governments during COVID, during the COVID pandemic. Lengthy, discriminate, micromanaging measures taking, taken against church worship gatherings. We've seen this in certain places. I have a friend who's a, a, a pastor at a church in California, Grace Community Church, where uh, John MacArthur is the pastor. And, and so uh, I got a sense for kind of what they were, struggling through there, and we recognize that it's not the case. It, was, it hasn't been the case everywhere. In fact, I remember talking with him on the phone one day, and he said, he said isn't it great that you uh, live in Georgia? <laughs> and it's a very different situation here in Georgia than there was in California with regard to government shutdown, shutdowns of churches. But we have seen this where pastors and elder boards have had to weigh The command to submit to and be in subjection to governing authorities on the one hand and to actually practice as Christians on the other. To to do what we're told in Hebrews 10, 25, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some do, but to, to seek to be together in worship. And so we've seen churches respond differently to that, As these two things have had to be weighed in the balance. And let me just say this. Neither unimportant. Neither of them is unimportant because both of them are commands of God. That's the important thing to see. Is it's not as though one of them is a command of God and one of them is just a human thing. No, no, no. One of them is a command of God directly to his church. And the other is a command of God as mediated through the government. And so Christians wrestle and process and think through these things. But we have seen, back to the original point, we have seen excessive measures taken where Christians have had to say, we must obey God rather than man. So let's pull these together. We submit to the authorities but we obey God over men. This is the way we are to think. Say this constantly to yourself as you're navigating life. We submit to the authorities, but we obey God over men. So here's what we need to avoid. And let me make this point really clear because I think it is a pitfall for us. We need to avoid justifying our insubordination or to use Paul's word, resistance, on grounds that have nothing to do with obeying God rather than men. Let me say that again. Justifying our insubordination or resistance to government, to governing authorities on grounds that have nothing to do with obeying God rather than men. You could just pull everything kicking and screaming into that category, right? Anytime we want to resist, Anytime we don't like what the government's doing, we just pull anything and everything, kicking and screaming, into the category of obeying God rather than men. Do we really have that kind of license? This has been one tendency throughout the history of the church. And and, uh, don't get me wrong, another tendency throughout the history of the church is for governments to use texts like this against Christians. Oppressive governments, particularly in the West, who have used texts like this to further oppress Christians under their rule. Oh, remember what God told you to do. Remember what God told you to do, much like the husband, who is oppressive towards his wife, constantly reminding her of what she's told to do by God rather than focusing on what he's told to do by God. Oh, remember, you, you gotta respect me. Oh, remember, you have to submit to me. Governments have done the same thing over the last 2,000 years. Let me give you a quote from Douglas Moo. I quote him a lot because his commentary on Romans is arguably the best commentary on Romans ever written. Some have said that. Uh, Some other commentators have made that point. It's It's a great commentary. Not that I always agree with what he has to say, but it's a great commentary on Romans. So I'm gonna read to you what he says here. It is only a slight, sorry, I'll start over. It is only a slight exaggeration to say, listen, this is, this is pretty funny actually. To say that the history of the interpretation of Romans 13, 1-7 is the history of attempts to avoid what, is, what seems to be its plain meaning. The history of interpretation can be, can be mapped out as a history of avoidance of doing what Paul here clearly tells us to do. Which means this, if you want to leave here today, And go and read commentaries and find justification for your resistance. You won't have a hard time doing that. The question is, ought you to do that? Live before God's face as you process all of this. But this is what I would say to this, say to us. Let us not be avoiders. Let us not be justifiers. Those who try to shirk this command those who try to get out from under this teaching of our master, let us listen and let us bring glory to our God through our obedience. Let our governments see in us the light of Christ, the glory of Christ. Yes, in our boldness in proclaiming Christ's gospel. Yes, in the purity of our lives. But yes, also in our speaking evil of no one, being gentle, living quiet and peaceable lives, and honoring those over us. Let us not be resistors. Let us live well under God and under the governments he has put in place. He has put in place the authority of God. We move now to our second point, the aim of government. And for this, we're going to look at verses 3 to 5. Not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So, if God has put government in place, why has he done so? That's the clear teaching of those first two verses, that God has indeed put government in place. But now we have to ask, why? Why has he done this? What is the aim of government? Is government a necessary evil? You read revolutionaries throughout history and it's almost as though government is just a a necessary evil. Well, that's not the teaching that we're getting here in Romans 13. Why has God put government in place? What is the aim of government? What is its purpose? Government functions as a cause of fear. It puts fear in people. It puts fear in the hearts of its citizenry. And we know what tyrannical, uh, terroristic, very wicked governments do in that regard to its people. Repressive governments. But government by nature functions as a cause of fear. A terror to those who would do evil. God has put government in place to check the wickedness of men. Remember where we live. We live on planet Earth post-fall. We live in a world described in Genesis 6 where everyone carries out the inclinations of his wicked heart, these evil deeds. And we see after the, the flood, it's still the case. We live in a very depraved, dark world. People even make movies about what it would look like if government went away. Poof! And we all know what happens in those movies or in those parts of movies or scenes of movies. It is absolute chaos. I know what each of us would try to do if that happened. We would try to stock up. We would get better locks. We would make sure we were ready because chaos would ensue. God has put government in place to check this wickedness. It is a blessing from God. Government is a blessing from God. Something to be grateful for. It is said here, it is for our good that government, governing authorities are for our good. And let me say this. Anarchists are not just rebellious towards God, given our last point. They are also ungrateful to God, given this point. Anarchists are rebellious against God's institution, but are also ungrateful to God for his good gift of government. Government by nature approves of good conduct and punishes bad conduct. Paul here lays out, of course, the ideal. We immediately think of instances where this is not the case. He lays out the ideal, but it is also something that is to be found to some degree in all the governments of the world, regardless of how depraved or corrupt. It is intrinsic to government to behave in this way. It is remarkable here how Paul refers to the one in authority. Notice that. How Paul refers to the one who is in authority. He is God's servant. He's God's servant. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Here we are told that God is executing his temporal judgment, carrying out his wrath on the world by means of the authorities. This is so much the case that those authorities, regardless of character and religion, let me say that again, those authorities... Regardless of their character or their religion, are here called God's servants and avengers. So I think this is an appropriate time just to say to those of you who uh, may be part of this authority, those who in our congregation are uh, magistrates in some form or fashion, leaders of uh, some sort of civil authority or are an arm of that as a law enforcement officer. If that is you, consider the great stewardship that you have been entrusted with by God. Consider, as we think about this this morning, the great vocation and weight that God has placed on you to live up to this ideal in how you practice your own rule or the execution of your authority. The image that Paul uses to summarize this authority, to punish and carry out God's vengeance, is the sword. That's the the one thing that Paul holds up in the hands of those who have authority. It is the sword, and primarily in view is capital punishment. It is utterly ridiculous to read commentators who will see this word sword here and say this has nothing to do with capital punishment. I'm like losing my mind as I'm reading that on the page. The sword is an image of death. It is an instrument of inflicting death. So it is true that many other aspects of of temporal punishment are in view. But of course, capital punishment is in view as well. The authorities carry the sword. Avenging God's wrath on the evil doer. This, of course, goes back to Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. By the way, let me just say this about the criminal justice system. I can remember being in high school and doing debates and and writing papers uh, about the nature of the criminal justice system. And it seemed like I I would be reading so much that the criminal justice system is about reform. That that, that's what it's about. It's not about retribution, retributive justice, it is about reforming evildoers. And I think this is an interesting point for us as we come to a text like this. We must conclude that the criminal justice system is retributive in nature. It is okay for us Christians to affirm that, that it exists to carry out God's retribution, his vengeance, his wrath, his judgment on the evildoer. That in and of itself glorifies God, irrespective of the reformation of the criminal. Though, in a just society, we consider that as well. So in light of all that Paul has said so far, he concludes with verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Submit to the government, because if you choose not to be in subjection to the governing authorities, then you will meet God's wrath mediated through the state. You will find yourself on the other end of the sword. And as I said before, it doesn't necessarily mean the death penalty, but it does include it you will find yourself on the other end of the sword. Also, since you know that the state has God's authority as a backdrop, submit to the authorities for the sake of keeping a clear conscience towards God. As you do it, you do it as one who is cognizant of the fact that God's authority is ultimately at stake. You are doing it not just grinning and bearing it and just dealing with it, but you are doing it In your conscience before God as an act of worship, as Peter says, for the Lord's sake, you are doing it as an act of submission and respect to your God. The authority of God is in view, and therefore the conscience is in view. As we finish up this morning, we come to our third point the act of giving. That is giving what is due, giving what is owed. So let's look for that at verses six to seven as we finish up. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. At the beginning of the sermon, I cited Jesus' words in the Gospels. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Paying taxes, Paul says, are a necessary part of keeping the government in place. This is how the government stands and does what God has instituted it and appointed it to do. It must get taxes from its people. We, therefore, must, as the people, give taxes to the government so that it can do what God has ordained for it to do. You see, guys, when we think about this, this is not mere do's and don'ts. This is thinking theologically about everything we do. Come March, April, worship the Lord our God as you pay your taxes. We can do that in the Spirit. In light of a passage like this, we are enabling it to do its God ordained work. Now, of course, we can have our political discussions. We have different political views in this congregation. You know, one of the things that struck me, and I've, I've shared this with some folks, is as I moved, when I, we moved to the UK, in uh, 2010. We lived there until 2014. I, I, it was really helpful for me to be in a church with wonderful believers. I mean, these were some godly believers. We love those folks as we love you all, and as we, we come to grow with the Christians that God's put us with. And as we were there, we began to realize that they uh, had different political views than we do. They're from the United Kingdom. They're not from North Carolina, which is where we were from in the United States, had different understandings of, of various political views, various things that we would debate about and talk about. It was very instructive for me. It was helpful for me to realize that in the United States, so many little political views get swept up into Christian theology. So many little things out here, well, yeah, that's Christian too. We just wrap everything up. There are differences in how we understand the role of government. There are differences in how we understand these political issues. And we can have our political discussions about the extent to which the government should tax its people. The amount of taxes the government should take and what they should do with those taxes. Let's have those political discussions. They are important and scripture does bear on the conclusions that we come to. But these discussions... Hear this, these discussions should never cause us to disobey what God teaches us here. We pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Taxes here, the first word, refers to direct taxes. This is property and poll taxes. And the second word, revenue, refers to indirect taxes, like taxes on goods, Of course, we all recognize that within the law, we find ways to decrease our tax liability. Of course, we do that. Uh, We ought to do that as good stewards of the money that God has given us. I'll tell you that that's what I'm going to do, the extent to which I can decrease my tax liability and therefore free up more money to provide for my family and to give. I am going to do as all of us ought to do as good stewards. But we always do this within the law, within the confines of the law. We take advantage of those things that allow us to pay less tax as we obey the law. Not deceitfully. At the end of the day, we pay what is owed. We are Christians we belong to Christ. We have no right to not do that. To not do so is to resist God himself. Let me say that again. To not pay taxes as we ought. As I said, finding ways that we can in conjunction with our accountant to decrease our tax liability within the confines of the law, not deceitfully. To not pay Taxes is to resist the God of heaven. It is to resist the Most High. It is to resist the Lord who owns us and who by the blood of his Son purchased us for his glory. We are Christians. Are we not? Paul ends with two other things that we must give. Respect and honor. Respect and honor where it is due. We must give it. Look, we may disagree with our leaders a lot. We may disagree with our leaders a ton. But do we show them respect and honor in how we talk about them? We must because we are Christ's. We must because we are Christians. So the minute you allow your heart to get swept up in the political rhetoric of the party or group Opposite of or or in your same camp, the moment that you begin to let your tongue get free with you and you justify what you're saying because this or that leader stands for this or that ungodly thing, you begin to drift from God's way. Speak evil of no one. No one. And here we see that that must particularly apply. If we should speak evil of no one, we should particularly not speak evil of those to whom honor and respect are due, which clearly in this context is the governing authorities. This extends to other human institutions and relationships, but it primarily has to do with government. So let's say that, give honor to whom honor is due, about other things, yes, that's fine. It's an extension of it. But let's not forget the context in which it was originally written. It refers to those over us in government. May we live as Christ people. May we not get swept up by the world, regardless of what sector of society, political persuasion, those individuals have. We belong to the King, the King who will one day rule in perfect righteousness, perfect peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the way you call us to obey you. But Lord, you you never call us to this apart from an understanding of who we are. Just as we saw last week, we are The beloved ones. We don't take vengeance because we are beloved ones. We are those who, in Jesus Christ, are loved by you. Loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as as Paul addressed himself to the believers in Rome, we are too loved by you, God. Called to be your holy ones not owned by our world, not owned by our subcultures. We are owned by Christ who paid for us with His own blood. Lord, help us live as Christ's people. Help us bring all of our proclivities and our political views and our opinions under the authority of Scripture so that Christ may rule in our hearts, in our consciences, over our behavior and over our tongues. Father, we thank you for calling us to this today. We ask that your spirit would massage this into our hearts this week. We thank you for the Lord's Supper where we are reminded who we are. We're reminded of our identity in Jesus and our identity with one another. Would you bless this time now in Jesus' name, amen.